0: Welcome to
1: ASRM Today Book Review, a podcast that interviews the authors who dive deeper into the field of reproductive medicine. I am Jeffrey Hayes, your host for this episode of the ASRM Today Book Review. On the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Robert L. Klitzman about his book, Designing Babies How Technology is Changing How We Create Children. Dr. Klitzman is a professor of psychiatry in the College of Physicians and Surgeons in the Mailman School of Public Health and the director of the Masters of Bioethics program at Columbia University. His prior books include Am I My Genes? Confronting Fate and Family Secrets in the Age of Genetic Testing, The Ethics Police, The Struggle to Make Human Research Safe, When Doctors Become Patients, and A Year-Long Night, Tales of a Medical Internship. He's received several awards for his work, including fellowships from the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation and the Russell Sage Foundation, and as a gubernatorial appointee to the Empire State Stem Cell Board and a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. Dr. Klitzman, thank you so much for being able to join us today. My pleasure. Right off the bat, I I enjoyed this book very much. And in the introduction to Designing Babies, you touch on the work of Clifford Gerritsch, whom you studied under, and I've read a few of his books, Available Lights, a favorite of mine, although I know that was much later uh, in his career as he as he was reviewing, I guess uh, uh, in many discussions I had about it with some other uh, uh, Garrett's people, you know, about his dissatisfaction or the decline of anthropological study as he was as he was getting older. Based on the difficulty of the subject matter of reproductive medicine and reproductive technology that you tackle in this book, can you talk a bit about why you lean towards more traditional anthropological or qualitative approaches such as Gertz's thick description approach rather than more quantitative?
0: Yes. Great question. Thank you. So uh, Goertz uh, argued that uh, it's important to try to understand – what people are doing in various situations and how they themselves look at those situations. So before him, there were, for instance, Marxist anthropologists who would go into a society, a particular island, say, in the South Pacific, and they would find Marxist approaches. They would find that you know capitalism didn't work, let's say, or there would be Freudian anthropologists who would go in and to a society and they would find things that supported Freudian theories, that you know there was, I don't want to say free love, but that there were not the kind of stringent sexual taboos that we might have in the West. And he argued that that's a problem. That is that anthropologists go in and find what they're looking for or are shaped too much by their own biases or preconceived notions. And that instead it was important to take a grounded approach, so to speak, of trying to understand how people themselves understand what they're doing, how they look at the world that they live in, uh, what their own theories of them are, rather than have our own preconceived conceptions. And I think in a lot of quantitative research, and I've done a lot of quantitative research, we as researchers often then have our own preconceived notions of what's going on. You know, we're going to look at depression as being the issue in a particular situation, for instance, or stigma as being an important issue, or Whatever it is, the, uh, and uh, and that's what we're going to measure. Whereas what Geertz argued is we should listen to what people are saying who are actors in that situation. So I went out to try to to speak to people involved in the infertility industry, both uh, physicians who are experts in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, also nurses who work in IVF clinics, mental health professionals, and patients uh, to understand how do they each look at what they're doing what do they think they're doing, what are they doing, et cetera, and therefore to avoid any preconceived notions that I or someone else may have. And that then opened up a whole range of issues that have often not gotten much attention, as I describe in the book.
1: So it, it too, in that approach and, and before people start running for the hills, just because I use the word, you know, qualitative over quantitative, you, it's actually, you do a good balance. I think a a, a mix almost it's, it so it is, it is more mixed method, but I just, I just didn't want, you know, a lot of more quantitative, uh, minded readers to, you know, go screaming for this, oh, I don't, don't want to just read people's interviews, uh, which can, which can sometimes, you know, be the case, unfortunately, um. So in summing up what you were just describing also for people, you know, it it always seems to me when someone undertakes a more, uh, a heavier qualitative approach, it's it's about learning the mindset of whom your subjects are. And in trying to learn the mindset of someone, do you think that that's an extension of trying to facilitate change or just to put ideas on the table?
0: Well, it's a great question. So I often take a, a start to investigate an area where to me, it seems there are questions that I don't know the answer for. So for instance, you mentioned I wrote a previous book called When Doctors Become Patients. So I, as a doctor, had a medical issue at one point and was surprised at how being a patient was completely different than what I thought it was going to be. So I wondered, will the other doctors face that? So I went and interviewed 75 doctors who became patients and found out how much they didn't know about what it was like to be a patient, what they had to learn, what they had to unlearn, and led to a group of papers that appeared in the Journal of the American Medical Association and elsewhere. And I think had been, they've been well-cited, and I think they've had an impact of uh, teaching us what we didn't know uh, as doctors often, uh, for an example. Or you mentioned I did a book called The Ethics Police. I interviewed members of Uh, of dozens of different IRBs around the country in depth, which no one had ever done. So people had done surveys of IRBs, how much time do you spend on a protocol, but no one had asked IRBs, and I should just say before that, I first interviewed uh, researchers, what do you think of IRBs? And they all said, you know, they block research, they have too much power. When I interviewed IRB members, they said, well, we don't have any power, we're just following the regulations. So here you have two completely different perspectives on the same phenomenon, and so, question in my mind is, how do people understand that? And so I went out and interviewed dozens of IRB members, for instance, and wrote a book about it. So um, it's often when, to me, there's a question or there's disagreement about what's going on in a situation, uh, and therefore it would make sense to try to investigate it. Uh, and usually there is a problem, and usually there are ways of improving the situation. V- very rarely are we in uh, you know, complex situations in which something can't be made better in some way. And so I try to understand what could be made better. Usually there's a conflict is what's going on, is why there's questions.
1: And that conflict, would you say it's fair that that conflict arises from some sort of compartmentalization? You, you know, you, again, you talk about how the IRB people are over here and, you know, standard research people are over here. And, and, and there just seems to be a lack of understanding and communication.
0: Yes, exactly right. And so that is what underlies. I should tell you an anecdote about how I got interested in all this, which is I actually uh, went spent a year living in a Stone Age tribe in New Guinea studying Kuru, which is the same as mad cow disease and was spread by cannibalism in this tribe. And this was before mad cow disease occurred, which was in the late 80s. Uh, I went and investigated this disease and the people believed the disease was caused by sorcery and could be cured by sorcery. And I said, no, Kuru's caused by a little thing like an insect. And they said, show it to us. And I'd say, well, we haven't identified it yet. Well, what does it look like? We don't know. Have you seen it? I'd say no. And they believe that a sorcerer would take something that belongs to you and they'd wrap it around a stone and bury it. And they'd cast a spell on it and they'd dig up stones and say, see this big stone here. This is the stone that killed my mother. And I'd say, no, no, it's a little thing you can't see. And they said, that's just magic. It's a stone that killed my mother. And I couldn't convince them. So I've long been interested in how people, patients often, often patients versus doctors or nurses versus doctors or different doctors in one discipline versus another, look at the same situation from different perspectives and therefore conflict comes up. And why is that? And how can we address the conflict?
1: And speaking of that conflict, one giant question that you wrestle with in your book, in your research is, just because we can do something that is in the that is in the context of reproductive technologies, you know, should we do it? Or even really, should it be offered? and And when I read that, of course, it reminded me in in, in, in a very silly way of of Michael Crichton's novel Jurassic Park, uh, which that yeah, comes up right. uh, in in but there are also a number of science fiction novels that you mentioned in your introduction. Uh, that sort of poke at this same question. You know, Brave New World, of course, is one. And uh, uh, for people who might not know, also there was a, a gentleman named Alvin Toffler who wrote a, a book called Future Shock, which yes. you know still right. has some some very strange prescience yes. even yes. today, forty yes. plus years on. In these types of books, you know that that tech that that humans would lean more towards such technologies, or you have a really interesting opening epigraph which presents a quote from the book of Genesis and a quote from Andy Warhol that you attempt to sort of tie together thematically in this book. So for our listeners, here are the two quotes Uh, from Genesis. God created man in his own image. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And then Andy Warhol said, Buying is much more American than thinking.
0: Right. So on the one hand, obviously, as the Bible says, there is an impulse to reproduce. And even if the Bible didn't say it, we evolved, and every species that exists evolved with a strong urge to reproduce. Otherwise, the species wouldn't exist there. On the other hand, we live in a society here in America, and there are other countries like this as well, obviously, where consumerism and capitalism reign. So in fact, there are only three countries in the world where you can legally buy and sell human eggs: Russia, India and, and the United States. Uh, and in Western Europe, it's completely illegal. Every other industrialized country, it's illegal. You could compensate a woman for her expenses, for car fare and things like that, but paying you know10,000 dollars and in some cases up to $50,000 for a woman's egg is illegal. Uh, so, uh, similarly, uh, uh, paid gestational surrogacy, where I can pay a woman to carry a fetus for me, is a big business here. It's pretty much illegal in all of Western Europe and other industrialized countries. Of course, it's now legal in Ukraine. It's been legal in India and Thailand and Nepal at different points, and there are different laws about that, and for whom, whether it's just for Indians in India or people from elsewhere, that's recently changed. Uh, So I think it's this America, here we are in America, where we have this commercialization in a large multi-billion dollar industry that some people say is now a $4 billion industry, the assisted reproductive technology industry. There are economists who say it will soon go up to $11 billion. Uh, And I think that creates a whole host of interesting questions and potential conflicts. So I think it's terrific that we can allow people who want to be parents to be parents who before couldn't be parents. So there are women with infertility, there are men with infertility, there are gay men and women, uh, there are uh, single mothers by choice, single uh, fathers by choice. So this is wonderful, but we need to be careful that we're doing it as ethically as possible and that there aren't abuses. And unfortunately there have been, in some cases, scandals or things that could be done better, uh, we can talk about that. Uh, and of course, there's also new technology. So there's now use of CRISPR gene editing technology that I predict at some point in the next few years is going to be used to create uh, more children. It's already been used apparently to create children in China. Uh, there was a pushback, but... The... It was
1: very controversial, yes. It was.
0: <laughs> yes, right. Yes, but uh, but we can talk more about that. The uh, The National Academy of Science came out with a report this fall laying out situations where they thought it would be permissible if it's found to be safe, et cetera. So we have a rapidly evolving area in which there's money to be made, and there are people wanting to pay for various services, and there are ethical, legal, and social questions. Should we allow a complete free market if I want to buy something and someone wants to sell it to me? Fine. Should we have regulations? These are are major questions that I'd look at in the book.
1: And I think you also, you know, one question I had when when I was reading it was that, and I think about this from time to time because, again, being in reproductive medicine and and, and reproductive technologies, we don't often seem to raise the ethical question of uh, a CRISPR or, you know, uh, uh, an ICSI or even an IVF procedure on a cow or sheep or, you know, or animals you know, in general, and it seems to be something that, that, you know, I know that usually falls under the FDA's uh, 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 parameters, but I I always find it interesting that, you know, those conversations seem to happen a lot less like that. That seems to be acceptable, but for human beings, it becomes a little bit more complicated.
0: Yeah. So a few things. So one, just, I agree with you completely. Here in the U.S., I think that's completely true. There, however, that being said, in Europe, of course, there's a large resistance to GMO, the genetically modified organisms, and uh, such things make people very nervous. Uh, and even I should add, right now, with COVID vaccines, uh, a lot of pushback on COVID vaccines from anti-vaxxers are from people saying, you know, it, it's going to alter your genes. They they alter genetics of something, quote unquote, in the virus, and it's going to alter your genes. And so I think there, there is, I think there are two narratives that are out there. Certainly there's the science fiction narrative, just like there's, you know, Frankenstein and Jurassic Park of, you know, the, the, the gene and brave new world, the edited gene gone berserk. And then there's sort of a narrative of good science that can help cure disease and help people with healthy families and things like that. So I think there are these competing narratives out there. I think one reason that, at least in the U.S. certainly, as well as elsewhere, we raise ethical questions with use of these technologies, as you say, with humans, but not with animals, is uh, one is there are the rights of the unborn child. So let's say we you know, we cloned Dolly the sheep probably 20 plus years ago, or I think the late 90s sometime, and no one thought, gee, what's the life of Dolly going to be like? Or a lot of people didn't. Of course, there are animal rights people who may... But if we say, well, we're going to experiment, we're going to clone a human being, and we're not sure what's going to happen exactly, people say, well, what's the life of that child going to be like? Uh, in other words, that person may be born deformed or have intellectual disabilities, and so we, uh, you know, we have concerns about that. Where we wouldn't have concerns about a calf, and you know, many of us we kill calves and eat meat, and, and many people do, not everyone, of course. But so, yeah. but there's more consensus that that's somehow permissible, uh, and of course the. If we create someone uh, using uh, CRISPR technology, for instance, or altering the genes, uh, that person may then have children and therefore spread or transmit those genes further. And so there's concerns that there's room for manipulation. Of course, as a backdrop there, historically, there have been concerns about eugenics. So uh, most famously, the Nazis decided we want to improve the genes of our society therefore they said let's kill all the jews and the gypsies and homosexuals etc so
1: and a lot of uh, people don't understand either that, that you know there was a whole eugenics movement in america in, the, in in the early part of the 20th century i mean this was it's it, it's it's frightening when you go down that rabbit hole and you and you do you do address that uh, a, a bit in the book
0: yes absolutely so in fact hitler got his ideas about eugenics from the united states uh, and in the twenties, nineteen twenties, there was a large eugenics movement in the United States. And at the Kansas State Fair, uh, when there were prizes given for the best pumpkin and the best pig or the best calf uh, or the best tomatoes, there was also pr- there were prizes given for the best pedigree. That you wanted to have a basically white Anglo-Saxon pedigree. And this was when there were waves of immigrants coming from Eastern Europe, from Southern Europe, from Russia, from Italy. And there were people in America who thought this was going to somehow dilute uh, the good ideal American gene pool. Uh, And so Cold Spring Harbor Labs, which is where Jim Watson, who won the Nobel Prize for co-discovering DNA, now works. Uh, Cold Spring Harbor Labs was set up to be a eugenics center basically in the 1920s. So we need to be aware that there can easily be prejudices and just be careful about what we're doing in terms of the ethical and social implications.
1: And speaking of social implications, and and also just to transition uh, away from the ugliness of eugenics and and back to uh, to more uh, recent ethics uh, discussions on CRISPR and and other reproductive technologies, I found it fascinating that that you discuss social pressures, and in your book you name it the parents' club. You know yeah. this genetic need to reproduce. You know. What is this need psychologically as you describe it in the book? Why, why do you think uh, the species that, that were compelled to reproduce at all costs in an increasingly uncertain world?
0: Yeah. So great question. And this is one of the things that struck me most as I did the research for the book. Uh, I was very moved by uh, usually women's stories of, this is, these are uh, women facing infertility, of how hard it was to to be someone with infertility, how hard infertility was psychologically to live with and particularly how much social pressure, as you say, they face to have kids. So um, parents would say to these young couples, gee, when am I going to have grandkids? Or, and sometimes there'd be jokes about it, right? Like, uh, you know, I hope you're busy making grandkids for us or something. Or when, uh, these, uh, uh, young adults, often people in their twenties, thirties would go home for Thanksgiving to their parents on the mantle. There would be pictures of all the grandkids, uh, or, and, uh, uh, otherwise, and otherwise they themselves would not be there on the mantle. Whereas perhaps previously there was a picture of them on the mantle. Um, similarly, a lot of women said that when they were now in their mid thirties, late thirties hadn't had children. And yet all of their friends, their cohort of people who they went to college with or high school with, uh, were all having babies and talking mommy talk and et cetera. And they were not part of that. Uh, and, uh, what hurt them was they would say, as I described in the book, uh, that people would say to them, uh, gee, I guess you're too focused on your career, huh? Or you don't really care about having kids. And they would say, you know, They may not feel comfortable saying, or they may say, you know, they said to themselves, actually, we'd love to have kids. It's not that we're too focused on our careers, but we have infertility. And of course, even within that, it's often difficult in a couple because a lot, of course, half of infertility is male infertility, and about 10% of all men are infertile, about 10% of all women, so total of about 20% of all couples. But often the male would say, well, it's your problem, he would say to his wife, "Uh, you know, it must be something wrong with you uh, that we're not getting pregnant. And the, uh, uh, often at half the time it was a man and often men feel well to not have a kid is not being macho. There must not be something wrong with me. It must be you. And so there are a lot of psychological dynamics that are there. And of course, even though we know that there is a strong drive to reproduce, and we wouldn't exist otherwise There's a strong sex drive, uh, but having kids also, it brings great meaning to people's lives. Uh, so there are people who've told me, people who are extremely successful in the world, who are CEOs of, you know, you know billion-dollar entities, corporations, foundations, have told me, you know, the most important thing in my life, the most rewarding thing in my life has been having children, not having this successful career, but having kids. So this brings enormous meaning to people. Going on a tangent, I think partly people all need a connection to something beyond themselves. For some people, it's religion. For a lot of people, it's having kids. That's a way of living on, so to speak, into the future. Uh, and uh, you may feel, gee, my life's not all that great, but I'm going to have kids and they'll have a better life. Uh, and so there's a lot of ways in which having children is a great source of meaning. And of course, if you can't do that because you're infertile, either biologically or in the case of gay men or single women or lesbians because they, you know, need assistance to do that, uh, uh, that becomes a great drive. And of course, one problem with that, as I discuss in the book, is also that it could lead to a lot of conflict again, because the cost can be quite high. And so couples will often get into debates of how much is a child worth? How much should we spend on this project? So, so there is this drive, and then there are problems that come up as a result.
1: I could talk to you literally all day about this book, uh, but we're almost out of time. Uh, so I, I just want to say um, I, I have one more question uh, for you. Um, in 300 plus pages, you cover an immense amount of ground, and you present a lot of pros and cons about reproductive medicine and reproductive technologies and these large ethical questions that we're just we're just scraping the surface of here in our in just our short discussion today. What is something that you hope readers will take away from this book?
0: Great question. So I would say that patients and patients' families and doctors as well should realize how hard infertility is, as we were just talking, to also realize that there's an immense range of choices. And a lot of patients said, I was just not prepared for this. I thought we'd see the infertility doctor. I'd have a round of IVF. I'd have a kid. I'd have a take-home baby. And so people are not prepared for the fact that this could be a very long journey that can take a number of years and be very expensive. As part of that, I think I think providers can do a better job in several ways. I think they providers and fertility specialists do enormous great work. However, um, they often um, don't set patients' expectations appropriately. They often want to think, "Gee, you know." It's a commercial transaction, we'll have you have a child, not be a problem. And a lot of people say when it doesn't work out, a lot of doctors, and this occurs in other areas of medicine too, will distance themselves from the patient, not return phone calls. The staff won't return phone calls. No one's there for the patient when they hear she has a miscarriage or you know, the, the couple was a miscarriage, et cetera. Um And I also think that we need to get better data. So CDC collects data from IVF clinics, which is very important, but collection is voluntary. It's not mandatory. And the amount of non-reporting has been going up. I think this is a problem. I think that uh, it's important to have the data so we know how to best help our patients There are, I think we need to prepare doctors in assistive reproductive technologies for CRISPR, which is coming down the pike for deciding when to use it. And there'll be certain guidelines, but there's going to be a lot of leeway. And, you know, when to use it, et cetera. Uh, There'll be early clinical trials at some point. So there are new technologies. And we need to be careful that we're not, there have been instances where uh, there have been Uh, new inner interventions that have been offered that have a high price tag that end up not being shown to be effective. And this happens in other areas of medicine as well, but we do need to be very careful about this going forward. So I think those are some of the issues. uh, And I would hope that the book would help, uh, as you say, uh, a wide variety of people of uh, how uh, infertility specialists can do better, often better bedside manner, or they've said things that end up being heard differently. Uh, I think getting ready for the fact that whole genome sequencing, whole exome sequencing is coming down the pike involving genetic counselors more uh, in what IVF clinics are doing is something we're going to have to do as we look toward the future. So I think getting ready for new technologies, changing laws we have to adjust for, et cetera. The book
1: is Designing Babies, How Technology is Changing, How We Create Children. The author is Dr. Robert L. Klitzman, who's been our guest today on the ASRM Today book review. Dr. Klitzman, thank you so much for being able to join us.
0: Thank you so much.
1: This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.